Welcome to Bedtime Stories for Grown-Ups, a podcast where I, Michael Kazanovich, tell, well, bedtime stories adapted for grown-ups. You can consider me a spiritual entertainer, if you will. I tell stories of the discoveries I made after falling down a particularly wonderful rabbit hole. The stories that I tell are true to the best of my knowledge. They do play out in our reality, but they originate in places I discovered after I rejected all the blue pills I kept being handed. These stories can be true for you too, if you just allow them to be. Just check your knowledge at the door and use your heart to listen to the space in between the words. And if you feel something resonate, it may well be your white rabbit moving around in the bushes, making itself known. I dare you to follow it. And if something provokes you in any way or feels outrageously untrue, remember, these are mere stories told by someone who went completely out of his mind. Episode 7. The Master of Emotions Who Learned to Live in Love Hi friend, how are you feeling? Isn't that a weird question when you really think about it? It's like asking how are you seeing or how are you smelling? Science with all its wonders has made us focus so much on the question of how that we ask how we feel instead of what we feel. But what we feel is arguably a more important question than how we feel. Just as understanding how something works, like gravity, allows us to ask the question, why does it work like that? So does what am I feeling allow us to ask the question, why am I feeling like this? And each such why is a step towards knowing our true selves, if we are brave enough to answer that why truthfully. I used to control my emotions a lot, keep them pushed so far down that I didn't have to feel them. I trained in so many ways. I love amusement parks, and one of my favorite rides is the drop tower. You know, the one where they pull you up to the top and suddenly drop you. Apart from the fact that the ride triggered my fear of heights, there was the added dread of no control of when they drop you. Some of these rides take a photo of the riders right after the drop. And in that moment, it's rather hard not to convey any emotion with your voice, let alone with your face. But I have a photo where I look completely bored next to my friend whose face shows all the excitement he felt at that exact moment. And I was proud over not showing emotion, even in the most distressing, exhilarating situations. I knew this was what men did. See? Dangers of knowledge? Men did not express emotions. They control them. I practiced hard and I got so good at it that when I saw Brokeback Mountain at the movies, I didn't bat an eyelash during the movie, nor in the car ride home. But as soon as I closed the door to the studio where I lived alone, I broke down and cried for three hours. I cried in that heartbroken way that I hadn't done since I was 12 when I came home from my last year at the summer camp where I had spent three weeks a year for a quarter of my life. This is the curse of the modern man. 
There's no evidence that men feel less than women, yet we are expected not to show our feelings. Boys don't cry, and a man is so far removed from a boy that a grown man crying is sometimes equated to a little girl in culture, especially in comedy. And so I practiced controlling my emotions, and I became a master of it. I came to a point where I wasn't sure that I really had that many emotions. I mean, after all, if you can't put a name to it, does it really exist? This is the problem with controlling your feelings. You become unable to name them. You need to be able to name emotions, to sort them, to untangle them and to convey them, to process them so you don't get stuck. When we're born, we're capable of feeling a rainbow of emotions. And I'm not talking about the type of rainbow humans can see. I'm talking about the type seen by a blue-bottled butterfly who has five times the photoreceptors we have. We are capable of all these complex emotions when we're born, even if we are unable to name them. We have no egos yet, no impulse control, and so we act on our emotions. When we feel pain or are hungry, we cry. When we're surprised by the universe, we laugh. Not knowing about object permanence can result in the most amusing surprises. Just look at any baby playing peekaboo. See? Knowledge. Can't live with it. Can't die without it. And as we grow up, we learn to identify and name more and more complex feelings. This is anger. This is sadness. This is love. This is lust. What is happiness? We learn of combinations of feelings like melancholy. Feelings just like colors can blend to create new hues. The feeling of the coziness you feel when you're having dinner with two of your best friends in your favorite homey restaurant is called gesellish in Dutch, hygge in Danish and mysit in Swedish. The feeling of joy you feel when you see someone you like but haven't seen in a long time is called jensynsglede in Norwegian. Feelings are contextual and some feelings describe a chain of events, like Vemmedalen. It starts with experiencing something exceptionally beautiful, like a magnificent sunset or the fjords of Norway, and you try to photograph it, which turns into frustration as you realize that there are thousands of identical photos of this, and this makes this amazing subject suddenly feel hollow and pulpy and cheap, like a mass-produced piece of furniture that you happen to have assembled yourself. Some emotions are such a complex mix that it takes years to understand them. Ligget is such an emotion. Anthropologist Renato Rosaldo found this emotion in 1967 when he and his wife Shelley visited the Ilongot tribe in the Philippines. It took 14 years and the tragic accidental death of his wife Shelley for him to grasp the emotion Ligget. Since we're talking about new words for contextual emotions, I'd like to talk about another new word, steltid. It's the Swedish word for the time you spend between tasks to be able to write notes or clean up or prepare for the next task. Emotions typically have steltid too. It's hard to jump from sadness to joy in no time without any event that triggers the change. Even empathy has steltid. 
When you're surprised by an event, it takes about seven seconds before the empathic part of your brain kicks in. This is why it's always wise to slowly count to 10 when you get angry, so that you give yourself a chance to be empathic. We're taught to stop acting on our feelings, which in many cases is a useful skill. Like not acting on your anger, because when you act angry, you also become more angry. This is why cognitive behavioral therapy works so well for many people. Actions, feelings, and thoughts influence each other, so acting angry will make you feel angry. And if you hear something breaking in your house late at night, thinking, someone's breaking in, or, oh no, the cat must have pushed something off the table, will trigger two completely different emotions. Feeling angry at someone begets thoughts of more reasons that your anger is justified. But if we throw out the baby with the bathwater and stop acting on the feelings we want to foster, like love, we lose our connection to it. This is what has happened to large parts of the world. After all, feelings can't be described, they must be experienced. And acting is experiencing, but above all, acting is contagious. How do you get someone to like you? Well, you start by liking them. If you really like a person after hanging out with them, chances are that feeling is mutual. We're born capable of such rich emotional lives with endless nuances. And as we grow, our family and society teach us to identify and name some of those feelings. The labels are an attempt to create stable borders around certain hues of specific feelings. It's oversimplifying and controlling at the same time, but we need ourselves and others to be predictable, to be stable, and feelings aren't. They are in a constant flux, mixing, waxing and waning, creating mixes we can only feel and never name. But we need to have predictability, and so we say, this is love. Or rather, we describe how love makes us feel and act and hope that everyone feels and acts the same in love. We create a handy and simple label. We took one of the most powerful emotions we humans are capable of and put it in a straitjacket designed by some Nordic minimalist collective named Fjetra, with that A with two dots over it. This is why we can love so many different things. Partners hobbies, children, movies, knowledge, ourselves. Putting the label love on that potent an emotion is like watching photos of a particularly magnificent sunset instead of being there in person. It's them medalen by proxy. I have always experienced emotions in Technicolor. Even the bland gray of depression has shades, dull as they are, but until that Saturday in June last year, when I lost my fear of not having control, until that day I was only able to express these technicolor emotions in grayscale words. The feeling that has scared me the most is love. It's so immensely powerful, capable of inspiring us to be our best selves, both as individuals and as species. And at the same time, it means that it has an equally powerful opposite, one that is seductive with its ease and rewards. 
I thought I knew what love was back when 16-year-old past Michael fell in love for the first time. But that was just one of the layers of love. Infatuation, physical attraction, lust. I didn't learn what comes next. Once the relationship leaves that state and reveals the layers beneath. I think this is one of our problems with love. We cannot put words to this amazing, powerful feeling, and so we describe what it makes us do. Buy things, spend time, have sex, which we call making love, as if love could be fabricated. But we also tell stories how it makes us lie and betray and even kill. And that is what love makes us do before it has turned into hate. Love is so complicated that until we have really experienced it, we keep revisiting stories that try to explain it in hope of realizing whether we ever have been in true love. If the world was the Matrix, those stories would be to us what the Oracle is to Neo. In the scene where they meet, the Oracle points to a sign saying Temet Noske and says, you know what that means? It's Latin, means know thyself. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Being the one is just like being in love. No one can tell you you're in love. You just know it through and through, balls to bones. And once we experience love, we realize that the oracle was right. You can't be told, you just know. And once you know what it truly is, you realize that you've had it all along. It may have been shown to you in the most horrible way, like a physical or psychological abuse. But when you're unprepared and incapable of experiencing the full force of love, it puts stress on your being that can make you do the most horrible things. Love is a force similar to the strongest fundamental force of nature, the strong force. The other are gravity, the weak force and electromagnetism. The strong force can give us life in form of the sun and death in the form of little boy and fat man. I didn't get the chance to experience the deeper layers of love until my current relationship. I spent the 34 years before I met my husband as a single. I'm sure I dated and I consulted the oracle about love countless times, but I still had no idea. I had spent most of my adult life as a single on the prowl, and going out to a club was associated with chasing Mr. Right, or at least Mr. Right now. This created a struggle in me the first years of our relationship. I had spent so much time enjoying the hunt that I had forgotten that you could simply go to the club to have fun. It took me a long time to find a reason to go out clubbing and find out who this new me was in the club context. I had to get to know my new self in addition to getting to know the guy I was so madly in love with and allow him to get to know not only my old self but also the new self that I was discovering. It's funny how I used to look for shared interests on dates. It's human to want to bond with people we like, and bonding requires common ground. I thought interests was a perfect common ground for a relationship, but had I met my husband under more traditional circumstances, I might have thought we have two different interests. 
He likes the outdoors and swimming and sports. He runs marathons and listens to hipsterish bands like Mumford and Sons or to artists like Jungle Pussy and Lizzo. He can actually sing most of her hits and it's amazing. I like video games, technology, being a complete psychonaut and the only label you can really put on my taste in music is music I like. I'm like the Stephen King to his Bear Grylls. We're so different that my husband once described himself as a cat and me as a golden retriever type dog at a nail party we went to. A nail party is when you throw a party and offer the guests a wide selection of fake nails. Everyone has to put on at least one fake glamorous nail, although at least the whole hand is encouraged, all in honor of Alaska's famous quote, if you're not wearing nails, you're not doing drag. But maybe our differences just prove that Paul Abdul and that cartoon cat, MC Scat Cat, were right when they sang Opposites Attract. But at the same time, we have so much in common, me and my husband. Our values, the people we love, our love for experiences and adventure, and our love for each other. I was afraid of thinking too much about my love for Michael. Yes, my husband's name is the same as mine, but it doesn't cause nearly as much confusion as you'd think, because people use the Swedish short version, Mikke, for me, and the English, Mike, for my husband. I was afraid of thinking too much about my love for Mike once the infatuation started to fade. I had no idea what came after that, and I was afraid that if I looked, I would only find a memory of the infatuation, like a fire that has gone out but the embers still give off some warmth. It was scary, especially on our fifth anniversary, when I realized that it really was true that I loved Mike more for every year. I decided to look into that Schrodinger's box where I had placed love. In it, I found out what love really is, but that's for another story. A friend of mine once said, you can choose to live in love or to live in fear. And synchronicity would have it that shortly thereafter I listened to the audiobook The Biology of Belief by biologist Bruce Lipton, which said pretty much the same thing. Living in love means trusting, whether it's your future self or loved ones or strangers or the universe. It means assuming goodwill and taking a loss for someone else's gain. Living in love means being curious and exploring, having an open mind. Living in love means collaborating. It means accepting change and trying to make the world better for everyone. People who live in love show vulnerability. They grow and allow people around them to grow. People who live in fear, they don't explore. They don't change their minds about truths that make up their identities and worlds. They are suspicious to strangers, afraid of new cultures. People who live in fear are afraid of change and never show vulnerability. Living in love or living in fear is one of the most fundamental choices that a human can make, but we are never alone in making that choice. Our environment, the society and culture we live in, our friends and families, they all influence how easy it is to make that choice. You can never force someone to live in love. You can only inspire them to. 
You can, however, force someone to live in fear, but only for as long as they accept it. So, friend, what are you feeling right now? I hope that whatever it is, it brings you dreams of a world where more people live in love than live in fear. Of moments and views that will never suffer Vemmedalen. Until next time, sleep well until you wake up. Bedtime Stories for Grown-Ups is written and produced by me, Michael Kazarnovich. The intro music was composed by Nazar Ryback. Transcript and extra material for each episode can be found at bedtimestoriesforgrownups.org. There, you'll also find my contact details and how you can support this podcast. You'll also find a form for requesting stories, in case there's something you'd like me to tell you a story about. If I have such a story, I'll tell it. And if I don't, well, I just might try to find one especially for you.